Psalm 113. Psalm 113, we'll be reading this whole chapter, verse 1 through 9 this morning. It says, Praise the Lord. Praise, O servants of the Lord. Praise the name of the Lord. Blessed be the name of the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. From the rising of the sun to its setting, the name of the Lord is to be praised. The Lord is high above all nations and his glory above the heavens. Who is like the Lord our God, who is seated on high, who looks far down on the heavens and the earth? He raises the poor from the dust, and he lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes, with the princes of his people. He gives the barren woman a home, making her the joyous mother of children. Praise the Lord. This is the word of God. Good morning to you. We are this morning um, turning to Psalm 113, and we have the opportunity to hear from my brother Everett Kyer. Uh, Pastor Pete is under the weather, and so our, our brother is going to be preaching this morning. Everett has been a faithful minister of the gospel for decades in this community, and um, now is a member of our church. And so we are so grateful for um, Everett and his um, teaching us this morning. So let me pray for Everett, and then we will we'll jump in. Lord, I do thank you for my brother. I thank you for his faithful ministry and that you are continuing to use him in this body. Even this morning, I pray that you would teach us from your word. Lord, thank you for his faithful presence here, for his ministry, Lord, his gifting. And I pray that um, all of that this morning would um, bring you honor and glory as your word is taught. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you, Chip. Um, that sorry rascal, uh, Pastor Pete, I was sitting minding my own business yesterday at 8.40 in the morning, and I get a call, and it starts, are you going to be at church tomorrow? And my immediate response was, nope. <laughs> so uh, uh, I, I have had a lifetime uh, enjoying preaching. Uh, I, you do need to know something about me, though. When I take the watch off, don't worry. It doesn't mean anything, uh, because um, I couldn't find my other watch this morning, and uh, this watch beeps when the heart gets, gets going too high, so I've got to take it off and put it down there. So, so yes, I am a little freaked out, okay? Uh, we're in uh, Psalms, wisdom, and, uh, or excuse me, Proverbs, and Pete called yesterday and said, look, I've got a sermon I've been working on. I understand that, so can you take something else? So yes, I did, and I want you to know we continue the wisdom tradition uh, with a life of praise. Um, Tim Keller uh, is who I would turn to to help us make the transition in thinking about a life of praise as a life of wisdom. Uh, when he writes concerning a common problem or a challenge, really, of the gospel when it's shared, we will often share the gospel 
and we will hear something similar to this. Well, I'm not very religious, but I'm a good person. And after all, that's the most important thing, isn't it? And lots of times we're like, now what do I say? Uh, and my question to that is, is that true? Imagine a woman, a poor widow with an only son. She teaches him how she wants him to live, to always tell the truth, to work hard, to help the poor. She makes very little money, but with her meager savings, she's able to put him through college. Now imagine that that son graduates from college and he hardly even speaks to her again. Oh, he occasionally sends her a Christmas card, but he doesn't visit her. He won't even answer the phone calls or letters. He doesn't speak to her. But he lives just like she taught him to live. He's an honest man. He's industrious. He's charitable. And he's kind. Would you say that's acceptable? And my response would be, of course not. Wouldn't we say by living a good life, but neglecting a relationship with the one whom we owed everything to, he was doing something less than commendable? And I think all of us say, yeah, that's exactly it. Well, in the same way, God created us. God gave us this life. Think bigger than just the food you eat. Think the air we breathe. Think the food we have. That's what we teach our children to do. Thank you, God, Father, for the food. Psalm 113, it seems to me, says to us, we all owe more to God than a moral life. His due is a life of praise. And it's Psalm 113 that I suggest to you helps our understanding as to the what and the why of praise. When we begin with the psalm, there's some valuable background information to Psalm 113 that I want to share with you. The first is that the psalm is in a section of the psalms often referred to as the Egyptian Hallel. Uh, now, don't freak out. It's not that big a deal. As a matter of fact, you understand it, and you don't even know you understand it. Hallel. Hallel is from a Hebrew word that you all know, hallelujah. And the word hallelujah is a Hebrew loan word because if you read it in Hebrew, it says the same thing. So hallelujah is praise Yahweh. The end of it, the J-A-H, is the shortened form of the name of God, Yahweh. Take it a step further. It's an Egyptian hallel. Uh, there are three Hallel collections in the Psalms. Psalm 120 to Psalm 136 is called the Great Hallel, the Great Praise. It's also known as the Psalms of Ascent. These were probably Psalms that the pilgrims taught each other and said to each other as they ascended the hill to Jerusalem for the great festival days. The book of Psalms ends with the last five books of the Bible, of, of the book, being the Hallel Psalms, the praise songs. And pertinent to us is Psalm 113, the Egyptian Hallel. It's Egyptian because it's related to the Passover in Egypt and the Jewish tradition that went with that and ultimately the Christian tradition. 
Only Psalm 114 mentions Egypt, but the themes from that Passover are there. The praise of God for his work of creation and redemption are found in each of the Psalms. Just to give you a little taste of the Hillel Psalms, it's very likely that these were the Psalms, Psalms 113 to 118, that were part of the songs sung by Jesus and the disciples on the night in which he was betrayed. The practice was to sing or recite Psalm 113 and 114, eat the meal, and then after the meal, sing or recite Psalm 115 to 118. If the Psalms are the church's book of worship, it's valuable to be reminded of our need to pursue the exercise of praise in our lives. I call on you to remember the first sermon this year in which our pastor said to us, think about the spiritual disciplines. I suggest to you this is one of those disciplines that we often miss. I want to very quickly, though, say thank you to John and to those involved with the music ministry here that one of the things I love about this church is we are taught to praise God on a regular basis. Uh, we are encouraged to listen to the songs that help us bring words and emotions to that praise. And I thank you for that. And this morning, there's a sense in which I could say this. Uh, this sermon has already been preached and preached better than I can. Uh, I enjoyed listening to the harmonies. I enjoyed immensely watching Kellen play, play the drums. I can't chew gum and walk at the same time. So when I watch him do that, I'm just like, wow, this is unbelievable. And those songs stay with me. You will hear me say before this is finished, I think that's an integral part of praise. But to turn to the psalm, the structure of the psalm is a very easy one. There's two parts. It's the what is praise part, verses 1 through 3, and then verses 4 through 9 give us a why of praise. Also, as you look at the psalm, note this. The psalm begins with praise the Lord. It ends with praise the Lord. This is a call for us to give hallelujah to God on a regular basis all through our life. I've said in verses 1 through 3, we're introduced to the what of praise. So these verses help us in our understanding of praise. And I want to quickly say this, as you read through the text, and I hope you read through the text on your own, it tells us what praise is not. But often what it's not is something we have to think about and move back from our culture and realize what our culture does to us. It seems to me that that's a key to understanding this psalm. So there are at least two things that I would suggest to you that you don't find in this psalm, but our culture would expect. The first one is that praise, hallel, is not a general appeal to be happy people by giving thanks. Look, the Bible wants us happy. The Bible is concerned about our ultimate happiness, though, and often our ultimate happiness works against our immediate happiness. So this psalm is not saying to us, hey, to thank God, I want you to just be happy, and I want you to give thanks because thanks will make you happy. Thanks will make you happy, but it's going to challenge you in other ways. There's a second 
cultural appeal that we must reject, and that's this. Praise, biblical praise, is not an appeal to flattery and guesswork. We're not called to flatter God or to guess what he's going to do. Praising God means that we come to understand here him and who he is. So in verses 1 through 3, what we find is praise, biblical praise, is directed to a specific person, object, and it's the praise of Yahweh. Verse 1, praise, O servants of the Lord. My suggestion to us is that we need to camp for just a moment on the servants of Yahweh. Note that it's the servants of Yahweh, not the servants of self and sin. I assume you are not unlike me. Therefore, I assume you are probably like me, though your sins might be different. But I have sins that are like blue jeans. I love it when I put them on. I feel good. They make me feel good. As a matter of fact, in some existential sense, they make me happy. Until I realize that that action has pulled me away from God and I begin praising a false God. The word servant here is one that is tough on our ears because we're servants to no one. We are people who have pulled ourselves up by the bootstraps. We are who we are because of what we've done. And while there is probably some truth to that, the reality here is that servants, the word servant in the Hebrew, has the idea of work. If we were to take the time to turn to Malachi chapter 3, verse 14, God, through the prophet, condemns the people of Israel because he, said they, he says of them, puts the words in their mouth, you have said it is vain to serve God. It's not worth serving God. And in their lives, they have said, hey, look, I serve God, I didn't get rich. We still were conquered by a foreign nation. We still are not getting what we want. The reality is that to be a servant of God, a servant of Yahweh, is a liberating act that we come to because we have found him to be sufficient for us and our needs. It's something that we act on in a sense out of self-interest, out of learned self-interest. We have found that in our greatest need, God was there to meet us and to change us. So when we say servants of Yahweh, Think not of something that we are forced to do, but something that we have chosen to do because of the greatness of the God we have come to know. Think of Isaiah 55 and Jesus and the great suffering servants. Jesus was a servant in Philippians. Paul picks up on it, and he talks about the servant who gave up everything to become nothing 
for the glory of God. You see, to be servants of Yahweh means that we are not just people who are giving thanks to be happy. It means that we have come to recognize where our true interests lie and who has those interests at heart. By the way, it doesn't say that, and we've missed this, and we've avoided it, but it's servants of Yahweh. You know the term Yahweh. When I was growing up, it was Jehovah. Jehovah and Yahweh are the same word. As a matter of fact, if you think about it, the Y becomes a J, and the H, W-H. Hebrew is not vocalized originally, and all Jehovah does is it takes the word Yahweh, J-H-W-H, the V, and it makes it Jehovah. We've gone to the word Yahweh. But what is the word Yahweh? Well, the word Yahweh shows up in this psalm in those verses five times. Look at it. Praise Yahweh. Praise, O servants of Yahweh. Praise the name of Yahweh. From the rising of the sun to its setting, the name of Yahweh is to be praised. I just want you to see that the word Lord is often translate, is, is the word we use to translate Yahweh. But five times there, we're mentioned Yahweh. And so the name of Yahweh becomes very important. Exodus chapter 3 is the backstory. Moses has been called in. God has said to him, you're going to go to Pharaoh. It's kind of like getting a call from Pete at 840 in the morning to preach the next day. Don't believe the junk that because I've done it for 30 years, it's easy. Uh, the joke this morning was, did you sleep last night? Well, quite frankly, no, but if I'm honest with you, part of that is because the Tar Heels played horribly last night. <laughs> but the truth is, uh, I was nervous. Now, my thinking is, anytime I get to the pulpit and I'm not nervous, it's time to quit, okay? Because this is dangerous stuff. We're dealing with the Word of God. But the reality is that as I go through Scripture, I'm not odd in that. People who say that, you ought to get up and you ought to be confident. No, confidence is something that goes against praise unless the confidence is in God. So Moses comes to God, and God says, you go to Pharaoh, and you tell him this. And he says, um, um, what, 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 who do I tell him sent me? And he said, you tell him Yahweh sent you. Interestingly enough, at the end of the book of Exodus, we have this. The Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord, Yahweh, passed before him and proclaimed, Yahweh, Yahweh, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Keeping steadfast love, I wish we had time to talk about the word hesed because that's steadfast love. Forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. That's Yahweh. 
You see, a name, there's always an emotional attachment to it. But it's more than that in this case. The name explains who Yahweh is. And here's the point for us this morning. This praise that we are called to do is loving homage, loving worship of the committed to the revealed character of God. In other words, those who know God, those who have experienced Him, those who have tied themselves to Him with the status of servant, they're the ones who know what praise is. You can talk about God all day. You can talk about God in the church all day. But if you personally have not become tied to that God and His character by experience, it's just sounding gongs. It's tinkling brass. That's what praise is. So why do I do that? Well, the reality is in verses 4 through 9, there's one reason we do it, and there are two aspects to that one reason. Let me show you what I mean. The second part of this psalm focuses on God. Perhaps the middle of the psalm, the apex of the psalm, the center of the psalm is in verse 5. Who is like the Lord our God? And the answer is nobody. Period. End of statement. Watch how he does it. In verses 4 through 6, he says, The nature of that God is one that causes awe in those who know him. Verse 4, the Lord is high above all nations. Verse 5, he is seated on high. Verse 6, he looks far down on the heavens and the earth. Probably never better said for me than by Lewis in the Chronicles of Narnia. When they see Aslan, and he goes, is he scary? Forgive me for the alliteration here, for the translation. Of course he is stupid. He's a lion. But he's gentle. And he's loving. And he's kind. God is a lion. This is big stuff. This is scary stuff. As a matter of fact, in the text, we could almost miss it. Drop back to verse 3. From the rising of the sun to its setting, the name of the Lord is praised. The common thinking in the surrounding nations in the ancient Near East about their gods was that they had a certain association. These gods had a certain association or power with the people of that region. Contrast that with the God who is God of all the world. In other words, the technical word is most religions of the day and most religions of our day are what we call henotheistic. Polytheism we know, many gods. Henotheism says there's a God out there, but he only relates to certain people certain ways. And what this text says is, no, the God Yahweh is the God of everybody. He sets over everything, he sees everything, and he understands it. Wow. Why do you praise God? Because of the nature of God. 
And when you understand the nature of God, it's spooky. It's scary. If we come before God with a casual, carefree spirit, maybe we don't know the God of Scripture. Maybe we know a henotheistic God that just relates to me because of who I am and I feel comfortable with him. Is he scary? Yeah, he's a lion. Dude, you know what a lion can do to you? But watch the second thing, the second aspect of God here. The second aspect of God is that he is a God who is a friend. He's a God who condescends, who doesn't sit on his throne and scare us to death. Rather, he comes down off of that throne and he meets us where we are. He raises the poor from the dust and lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes, with the princes of his people. There is a sense in which God is my friend. He's allowed me to call him friend. Wow. I have a brother-in-law who clerked for Justice Kennedy, Supreme Court. I remember when he invited us to go to the Supreme Court, and there's this long line there, and all of a sudden we see Larry come out, and Larry points the guard to us, and in front of everybody, we kind of walk in. <laughs> it's like, <laughs> take that. <laughs> we walk down the hall, and Justice Sandra Day O'Connor walks by, and he says, good morning, Justice. And Sandra Day O'Connor stops and talks to us. He takes us into Justice Kennedy's chambers, that it seems to me were about as big as this room. They weren't, but it seemed that way. And he sat down with us and talked to us for an hour. As a matter of fact, my older son uh, was looking at a clock. And as he looked at the clock, he started to pick it up. And I'm like, oh, God, please, no, please, no, no. <laughs> Justice Kennedy gets him and says, oh, don't worry about that. Son, if you can tell me where the clock is about or what's different about it, I'll let you play with it. And he says, you're from California. It's California time. That's true. It was given to me by the governor when I became a Supreme Court justice. You see, in that day, for me, it marked my life that that's not Kennedy's like God. But I started to realize that in me is that ability to move back and forth. And God said, look, Justice Kennedy is nothing. Senator Day O'Connor is nothing. The Supreme Court of the United States is nothing. Because remember, this God sets on high. But he condescends to call me friend, and he loves me. And then he closes the psalm out with this. It comes out of the left field at 100 miles an hour. And it's like, where did that come from? He gives the barren woman a home, making her the joyous mother of children. Praise the Lord. What in the world does a barren woman have to do with reasons for me to praise God? And I want to suggest to you that Derek Kidner helps us connect the dots, following, allowing us to make sense of the barren woman when he points us to Hannah's song in 1 Samuel chapter 2. You remember Hannah's song. Hannah is the mother of Samuel. She is a second wife, two wives. She is barren. The other wife is bearing children. 
And after an extended period of wrestling with being barren through prayer and supplication, being accused by Eli the priest of being drunk, God blessed her with a child, Samuel. Her song of praise is recorded in 1 Samuel chapter 2. In 1 Samuel chapter 2, verses 7 and 8, are very closely copied in Psalm 113. As a matter of fact, Derek Kidner, a Hebrew scholar, said that it's almost a direct quote. So what's going on? A childless woman becomes a mother, Hannah. Psalm 113.9 picks up the theme that the Most High takes care for the most humiliated. Then Hannah's joy becomes the joy of all who run to this God. By the way, the joy of Hannah in 2 Samuel or 1 Samuel 2 pointed out in Psalm 113 is outshone by the Magnificat in Luke 1, which refers back to Hannah. This is not an anomaly. It's a theme of Scripture. God is different in terms of his relationships with this. Think about it. The Most High cares for the most humiliated, but brings to mind the train of events that can follow from such intervention, Psalm 113. Hannah's joy becomes all Israel's joy, Sarah's joy in Isaac becomes the joy of the world, and the song of Hannah is outshone by the Magnificat when Mary, a lonely teenager with child out of marriage, gives birth to the Savior. There's much more going on here than simply God making poor people rich or taking them from bondage. God's glory is so much bigger than this world can handle. It's also at home with the lowly things of life. So the praise of God changes us completely. Listen to the New Testament. When we were dead in our trespasses, God made us alive by grace. You have been saved and raised up. It's a gift of God. Listen to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed, the new has come. Colossians chapter 3. Therefore, if you have been raised with Christ, keep seeking the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on the things that are above, not on the things that are on earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with him in Christ. When Christ, who is our life, is revealed, then you also will be revealed with him in glory. Wow. On one of my pastoral visits, I just stepped into the hospital elevator and punched the button for the fifth floor when a young, obviously pregnant woman slips in beside me. I knew the babies were delivered on the second floor at this hospital. And noticing I had punched five, and she was looking at the button panel, but didn't press a button. I asked, number five? <laughs> Heavens no, it's my first one. <laughs> Salvation is the beginning of deliverance. 
from self. And praise is the result of that deliverance. If you're here today and you're unaware you're poor and needy, compliment God all you want. Come into his house, say his name. But you haven't learned praise. Because praise is the affection that grows from someone who has seen him for who he is. He is high and holy and lifted up. He's also my friend. I'm amazed by the new atheists who talk about the God of Scripture being this brutal, horrible God. And they go to the Old Testament and they show us all these Scripture. And I turn to them and I say, you don't understand my God. My God became a human being and went to the cross and died for me. He paid the penalty I couldn't pay by his death. How can I help but praise him? Time is gone. Once that issue is settled, I want to remind you that our God is big. As a matter of fact, Peter Bueller, who helped lead John and Charles Wesley to experience conversion, once said this, if I had a thousand tongues, I'd praise Christ with them all. Charles Wesley expanded this stray comment into lines that became the well-known hymn, Oh, for a thousand tongues to sing. I'm intrigued how music helps our praise. And to that end, I close with, do you find yourself forgetting God's goodness? I love the gift of song. And the song that has been going on in my head and led me to this psalm today is the song by the group from Australia. I approach the throne of glory where the king is, where the lion is. Nothing in my hands I bring. But the promise of acceptance from a good and gracious king. I don't have this praise thing down at all. As a matter of fact, at 71, I think I'm still a newbie. I still want what I want, and I'm constantly finding it more natural to put me at the center of my story and my prayer life and everything. But as I ponder Psalm 113, I find I am better able to think more of him and less of me.